You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to History of the Second World War, Episode 106, Highway to the Danger Zone, Part 4, the hotter the intensity. This week, a big thank you goes out to new members, Scott, Christopher, Bruce, and other Scott. You can head over to historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members to find out more about the membership program. While war would start with Germany invading Poland in September 1939, the period between March and September were very active for France and Britain as they tried to find their path forward after it was clear that their previous appeasement efforts were not going to have their intended effects. There were three main avenues that would be pursued, an increasing focus on rearmament, discussions with Poland that would make it far more dangerous for Germany to attack the Poles, and negotiations with Russia to form some kind of alliance. We will start with the Polish guarantee, which would be provided by the British government to Poland in the spring of 1939, and it would then be the basis for an alliance that would be signed in the weeks before the German invasion. We will then close out the episode by looking at the efforts of the British and French to enter into an alliance with the Soviet Union, an alliance that both London and Paris would claim they wanted, but their actual actions would kind of prove otherwise. At the end of this episode will also be a full reading of the Agreement of Mutual Assistance between the United Kingdom and Poland, which would be signed in London in 1939. This episode features several quotes from public speeches given by various politicians, and quotes from diplomatic communications between various governments. I want to give my standard disclaimer on all of these types of documents right here at the beginning. Be careful with interpreting what is being said in such instances, especially public speeches. They are written for an audience and for a purpose, so just because somebody says something in a public speech, it does not mean they actually feel that way, or that they would actually pursue those policies. Such speeches can still be interesting, as it can tell us what national leaders wanted or were forced to focus on throughout the period being discussed, and how they wanted those events to be interpreted by those that were, you know, listening to them talk. In the weeks after the final destruction of Czechoslovakia, discussions within the British government began to revolve around what concrete steps could be taken to prevent further German territorial revisions. There was still some resistance among some groups to just resort to creating some kind of grand alliance, mostly out of fear that it was such alliance systems, agreements that would compel Britain into war, that had contributed to the start of the First World War. 
Here is the Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain from a speech before the House of Commons on March 23, 1939. Quote, Nor is this government anxious to set up in Europe opposing blocks of countries with different ideas about the forms of their internal administration. We are solely concerned here with the proposition that we cannot submit to a procedure under which independent states are subjected to such pressure under threat of force as to be obliged to yield up their independence. And we are resolved by all means in our power to oppose at such attempts, if they should be made, to put such a procedure into practice. End quote. However, this line of argument would not stand up to the pressure that would be placed on the government to do something to protect other nations that were surrounding Germany, primarily Poland. By the end of March, discussions were occurring between the two governments to formulate some kind of agreement. The Polish foreign minister, Beck, was in London for these discussions, and they would actually be pushed forward quickly due to some intelligence, which would prove to be incorrect, that Germany was considering an immediate action against Poland on March 31st. This would prompt the British to ask Beck if he had any problem with some kind of public declaration based on the outline of an agreement which could be made before the final details were ironed out. I don't have a source on what Beck was thinking at this point, but he certainly was not bummed out. This temporary agreement would be publicly acknowledged by Chamberlain on March 31st, again before the Commons. Quote, in order to make perfectly clear the position of His Majesty's government in the meantime, before such consultations are concluded, I now have to inform the House that during that period, in the event of any action which clearly threatened Polish independence, and which the Polish government accordingly considered it vital to resist with their national forces, His Majesty's government would feel themselves bound at once to lend the Polish government all support in their power. They have given the Polish government an assurance to this effect. End quote. However, immediately before the above quote, Chamberlain would still make it clear that the British government would always be open to further peaceful negotiations. Quote, I am glad to take this opportunity of stating again the general policy of His Majesty's government. They have constantly advocated the adjustment by way of free negotiation between the parties concerned of any differences that may arise between them. They consider that this is the natural and proper course where differences exist. In their opinion, there should be no question incapable of solution by peaceful means, and they would see no justification for the substitution of force or threats of force for the method of negotiation. End quote. On April 6th, the agreement would be officially announced to the world in a joint communique between the British and Polish governments. It would say, quote, It was agreed that the two countries were prepared to enter into an agreement of a permanent and reciprocal character to replace the present temporary and unilateral assurance given by His Majesty's government to the Polish government. End quote. The French government was in firm agreement with this line of development, and in fact it had a long-standing alliance with Poland that dated back to the early 1920s. The German government was, even though not named in the agreements, not exactly thrilled with the developments that had occurred. In 1934, Germany and Poland had signed a non-aggression pact that was supposed to last for 10 years, and they would claim, the Germans would claim, that the new agreement violated the spirit, if not the letter, of that agreement. On April 27th, the German government would write to the Polish government, quote, Irrespective of the manner in which its finer formulation may be determined by both parties, the new Polish-British agreement is intended a regular pact of alliance, which by reason of its general sense and of the present state of political relations is directed exclusively against Germany. 
For the obligation now accepted by the Polish government, it appears that Poland intends, in certain circumstances, to take an active part in any possible German-British conflict in the event of aggression against Germany, even should such this conflict not affect Poland and her interests. This is a direct and open blow against the renunciation of all use of force contained in the 1934 Declaration. End quote. Now, this communication goes on for like thousands of words, and I'm, I'm not going to read all of it, that's for sure. But it basically boils down to, how could you do this to us? We were such good friends. While, of course, Germany was rapidly reaching the point where it was planning for an invasion. The agreement in and of itself between Britain and Poland was important, but it would also in some ways open the floodgates for other agreements to be signed in the weeks that followed. After the Italian invasion of Albania, similar agreements would be given by the British government to Greece and Romania, tying the British government to events in Eastern Europe in peacetime for, at the very least, the first time in a very long time. The reasons for the Polish alliance, both with France in the 1920s and then with Britain in 1939, was as a warning to Germany against aggression, and to make it clear that any aggression would result in Germany having to fight a war on two fronts. This had been the exact same reason that France had signed an alliance with the Russian Empire back before the First World War. There was also another nation that could be added to the alliance structure that was developing over the summer of 1939, the successor of that Russian Empire, the Soviet Union. Before we look at discussions that would occur between the representatives of Britain, France, and the Soviet Union, we have to first talk about the overall relationship between the nations leading up to those discussions. I've mentioned this a few times over the course of this podcast, but it's absolutely vital to understand that there was a persistent and very strong anti-communist feeling within the British government, and an anti-capitalist feeling in Moscow. This would not evaporate in 1939, or even after the Soviet Union joined the war against Germany. The Soviet Union and the other nations would become allies of necessity, but that was all. In France, there was also anti-communist feelings not just for their concerns about the spread of communism, but also among the conservative national governments that took power after the Popular Front, who were fearful that any kind of external socialist influence might push the Popular Front back into power. There had actually been discussions between France and the Soviet Union back in 1935 with the goal of signing a pact between the two nations. It even got to the point of, of rough drafting, but then it sat in Paris without response until it was eventually considered abandoned. On the Soviet side, there were equal levels of distrust of the other nations, and in fact, in March 1939, Stalin would give a lengthy speech before the 18th Party Congress discussing the fact that he would refuse to allow the Soviet Union to be used as a pawn in the games played by the capitalist powers, and he would not let the Soviet Union's people kind of be cannon fodder for these capitalist wars. To quote that speech from Stalin when listing out the foreign policy goals of the party, quote, to be cautious and not allow our country to be drawn into conflicts by warmongers who are accustomed to having others pull the chestnuts out of the fire for them, end quote. Or in another section, when speaking of the actions of France and Britain, who he was criticizing for what he called their policy of non-intervention, quote, But actually speaking, the policy of non-intervention means conniving at aggression, giving free rein to war, and consequently transforming the war into a world war, 
The policy of non-intervention reveals an eagerness, a desire, not to hinder the aggressors in their nefarious work, not to hinder Japan, say, from embroiling itself in a war with China, or better still, with the Soviet Union, not to hinder Germany, say, from enmeshing itself in European affairs, from embroiling itself in a war with the Soviet Union, to allow all the belligerents to sink deeply into the mire of war, to encourage them surreptitiously in this, to allow them to weaken and exhaust one another, and then, when they have become weak enough, to appear on the scene with the fresh strength, to appear, of course, in the interests of peace, and to dictate conditions to the enfeebled belligerents. End quote. The contents of the speech would be discussed among the governments of Europe as well, you know, not just in the Soviet Union. For example, Goering would actually discuss it on a visit to Rome on April 16th when he was sort of chatting with Mussolini. Now, back during March, the idea of a larger conference was proposed by the Soviets, which would have involved not just England and France, but also Poland, Turkey, and Romania. This is a great example of how, you know, just because Stalin was saying something at this at the speech to the party Congress, it didn't mean the Soviet Union and, and its government might not be, you know, looking at other avenues. However, for this specific four-power conference, the British did not want to enter sort of into such large negotiations and preferred smaller and more focused agreements with smaller groups of nations, which is one of the reasons that the Polish guarantee was given at the end of March. You know, it was between just two nations, it could happen very rapidly, and it could be done kind of at the spur of a moment, instead of these large negotiations, which would have involved multiple governments getting together and everything like that. In mid-April, the Soviet foreign commissar would try again and would suggest that the British, French, and Soviet governments get together and start conversations with the goal of creating a pact of mutual assistance. When this proposal was communicated to London and Paris, there was some hesitancy to quickly answer, as the two nations were not really ready to enter into military negotiations with the Soviets. They didn't want to talk about military topics. They did not reject their proposal, they would just kind of slow play their response, and would in fact not reply until May 8th. The response would not be a complete rejection, but it certainly was not an enthusiastic response. Even before it arrived, the situation in Moscow was already beginning to shift drastically anyway, with Litvinov, a supporter of stronger relations with Britain and France, and a supporter of general collective security, being removed and replaced in his position of foreign commissar with Molotov, who was far more open to discussions with Germany. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own? With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances, I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. While the Western governments had not been very receptive to Soviet advances in the spring, during the summer months starting in late May, the tables turned, and suddenly it was the British and French pushing for talks with the Soviets to create some kind of tripartite mutual agreement. In the wake of the Pact of Steel between Italy and Germany, the British ambassador and French charge d'affaires would ask Molotov if the Soviet government was still interested. They did not get back what would be qualified as an enthusiastic answer, but on June 2nd, a Soviet rough draft would be presented to the French and British as a basis for further discussions. This had some of the clauses you would expect, a mutual guarantee of all three nations, but it would also bring the three nations into a war with any nation that attacked one of eight nations in Eastern Europe, Turkey or Belgium. The real key is that the Soviets also wanted concrete agreements on the military arrangements should the alliance be activated by a war. This might seem like a simple request, you know, you gotta know what's gonna happen if the alliance is activated. But there was a major problem that had to be solved. Many of the nations of Eastern Europe were concerned about German actions and about future German actions. They did not want to be invaded by Germany. However, many of them were just as concerned about Soviet intentions. Nations like Poland, Romania, or the Baltic states saw the Soviet Union as at least an equal threat to their independence as Germany, and in some cases as a much graver threat than Germany. This made any military operations by the Soviet Union against Germany tricky, because the Red Army was going to have to move through somewhere to get to Germany. This had always been the major sticking point with Poland, who had fought a war with the Soviet Union less than two decades before. These were logistical problems that would have to be solved if the arrangement was to be put in place, but more importantly for why it was never signed were actually political problems. It would take almost a month before the draft was accepted as the basis for negotiations by the British government. On June 23rd, they would finally agree, by which point Soviet patience was already wearing thin. The two sides were also pretty far apart. There was a large gap between them. And honestly, to me, it generally just feels like the British government did not really have its heart in the game during these discussions. The Soviets would agree with that assessment, especially after it would take until August for the British to agree to staff talks to try and work out the military side of the arrangement. These negotiations, these military negotiations, could have major ramifications for both nations and for the future of Europe. It, it could win them a war, a war that over the course of 1939 seemed to be a greater and greater possibility. And so to negotiate this critical agreement with the nation with, on paper, one of the strongest militaries in the world, the British sent some pretty low-ranking diplomats with any, without any actual power to make any actual agreements. 
And due to the time-critical nature of these discussions, very important that they happen soon, these representatives were sent to Moscow on a slow-chartered merchant ship that could not make more than 13 knots. It was basically the opposite of Chamberlain's triumphant dash to Munich to meet with Hitler, and the Soviets took offense to what they saw as the British telegraphing that these conversations were just not that important. When these representatives did actually reach Russia, nothing really happened. There were discussions, but there was no sense of urgency, and the same sticking points remained. A military and political agreement, which the Soviets were insistent had to occur simultaneously, was never really in the cards. And in late August, the German government would sweep in and take advantage of the situation, and when they did, they would not send some low-level functionaries on the literal slow boat to Leningrad with instructions to take it nice and slow. Molotov would jump on a plane and go to Moscow. What follows is the full text of the agreement signed by the British and Polish governments. One small note, in this secret protocol at the end of the treaty, I've added a few phrases to remind the listener about which articles are being referred to, because the text only refers to the number. These small additions are not in the original text, but I think they are important to make it easier for this an audio podcast. Article 1. Should one of the contracting parties become engaged in hostilities with a European power in consequence of aggression by the latter against the contracting party, the other contracting party will at once give the contracting party engaged in hostilities all the support and assistance in its power. Article 2. The provisions of Article 1 will also apply in the event of any action by a European power which clearly threatened, directly or indirectly, the independence of one of the contracting parties, and was of such a nature that the party in question considered it vital to resist it with its armed forces. Should one of the contracting parties become engaged in hostilities with a European power in consequence of action by that power which threatened the independence or neutrality of another European state in such a way as to constitute a clear menace to the security of that contracting party, the provisions of Article 1 will apply, without prejudice, however, to the rights of the other European state concerned. Article 3. Should a European power attempt to undermine the independence of one of the contracting parties by processes of economic penetration or in any other way, the contracting parties will support each other in resistance to such attempts. Should the European power concerned thereupon embark on hostilities against one of the contracting parties, the provisions of Article 1 will apply. Article 4. The methods of applying the undertakings of mutual assistance provided for by the present agreement are established between the competent naval, military, and air authorities of the contracting parties. Article 5. Without prejudice to the foregoing undertakings of the contracting parties to give each other mutual support and assistance immediately on the outbreak of hostilities, they will exchange complete and speedy information concerning any development which might threaten their independence, and in particular, concerning any development which threatened to call the said undertakings into operation. Article 6. The contracting parties will communicate to each other the terms of any undertakings of assistance against aggression which they have already given or may in the future give to other states. Should either of the contracting parties intend to give such an undertaking after the coming into force of the present agreement, the other contracting party shall, in order to ensure the proper functioning of the agreement, be informed thereof. 
any new undertakings which the contracting parties may enter into in future shall neither limit their obligations under the present agreement nor indirectly create new obligations between the contracting party not participating in these undertakings and the third state concerned. Article 7. Should the contracting parties be engaged in hostilities in consequence of the application of the present agreement, they will not conclude an armistice or treaty of peace except by mutual agreement. Article 8. The present agreement shall remain in force for a period of five years. Unless denounced six months before the expiry of this period, it shall continue in force, each contracting party having thereafter the right to denounce it at any time by giving six months' notice to that effect. The present agreement shall come into force on signature. Secret protocol attached to the agreement of mutual assistance between the United Kingdom and Poland, signed on 25th of August 1939. The government of the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland and the Polish government are agreed upon the following interpretation of the Agreement of Mutual Assistance signed this day as alone authentic and binding. The expression, a European power, employed in the agreement is to be understood Germany. In the event of action within the meaning of Article 1 or 2 of the agreement by a European power other than Germany, the contracting parties will consult together on the measures to be taken in common. The two governments will, from time to time, determine by mutual agreement the hypothetical cases of action by Germany coming within the gambit of Article 2 of the agreement. Until such time as the two governments have agreed to modify the following provisions of this paragraph, they will consider that the case contemplated by paragraph 1 of Article 2 of the agreement, which discussed threats made against a nation's vital interest, is that of the free city of Danzig and that the cases contemplated by paragraph 2 of Article 2, which dealt with Germany attacking a neutral nation, are Belgium, Holland, and Lithuania. Latvia and Estonia shall be regarded by the two governments as included in the list of countries contemplated by paragraph 2 of Article 2 from the moment that an undertaking of mutual assistance between the United Kingdom and a third state covering those two countries enters into force. As regards Romania... The government of the United Kingdom refers to the guarantee which has given to that country, and the Polish government refers to the reciprocal undertaking of the Romano-Polish alliance, which Poland has never regarded as incompatible with her traditional friendship with Hungary. The undertakings mentioned in Article 6 of the agreement, which dealt with one of the nations entering into agreements with other nations, should be entered into by one of the contracting parties with the third state, would of necessity be so framed that their execution should at no time prejudice either the sovereignty or territorial inviolability of the other contracting party. The present protocol constitute an integral part of the agreement signed this day, the scope of which it does not exceed. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode, our last on this series of episodes discussing the events in Europe in the lead-up to the Second World War, in, in which we will be covering the German and Soviet negotiations that would eventually lead to the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, which would take advantage of some of the events that we discussed in this episode with the hesitancy of the French and British to enter into an agreement with the Soviet Union. 